You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, it's me, Pete. Before we get started with our episode today, I want to bug you with some info about our May class. Now, I know you've been hearing a lot about our classes, but bear with me because this class is going to be the best yet because I'm the one teaching it. It's called The History of Biblical Interpretation, and it's happening live on May 31st from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's a one-night class surveying the seven stages of interpretation from Second Temple Judaism to post-modernity which I am so excited to teach about. So it's pay what you can until the class ends, and then it costs $25 to download. And if you want to access this class and future classes, yes, past and future, you can get that for 12 bucks a month through our community, the Society of Normal People. And for more information and to sign up for the class, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash interpretation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today on Faith for Normal People, we're talking about the power of black literature with Dante Stewart. Dante is an award-winning writer, ordained minister, and author of Shoutin' in the Fire, an American epistle. Right. And his work has appeared all over the place, like The Atlantic, New York Times, Washington Post, Time, and a whole bunch of places. Right. And don't forget to stay tuned at the end of this episode, where we'll reflect a little bit in quiet time. Right. Here we go. Let's get into it. To encounter Baldwin was for me to question like, Dante, what God do you really believe in? What God do you really believe love this world? Baldwin says, if the concept of God has any use of validity, it can only make us more larger, more freer, and more loving. And if God cannot do this, then we better had get rid of him. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow, or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome, Dante, to the podcast. It's great to have you. Uh, What's up? What's up? It's so good to be with y'all. All All right. Well, we can't, you know, have an episode about black literature without first asking, why does black literature matter to you? What was your introduction to, you know, writers like James Cohn, James Baldwin, Toni Morrison? What does it mean to you? Yeah, immediately for me, I go back in time to my mother's house. And literally, like I was thinking about this the other day. 
as I was in a writing session. So my house, I'm from the Black Rural South, a small town of about 2,000 people. And my family is a very quintessential Black Southern rural family, very much rooted in very local grassroots political organizing, as well as like Pentecostal life, AME life, because my family is a mixture of Pentecostal, AME and Baptist, as well as like community life. And our family was very much rooted in like NAACP there. And my town is a sports town. So my family is very much rooted in this like idea of like God, faith, family, football, whatever, you know, people (laughs) be saying. But one of the things that I remember deeply is the copy of Margaret Walker's Jubilee on the shelf. On it, it wasn't necessarily a shelf. It was like a nightstand in the living room in my mother's small and my parents' house, small living room. We live in a very small house. You know, you could literally hear the steps from the kitchen to the back of the house. Could make it from the kitchen to the back of the house in literally maybe ten seconds. But I always remembered the books. The books. The books were everywhere. I mean, everywhere. They were in the rooms. They were in the kitchen. They were in the living room. They were in the dining room. Books and artifacts of our living was literally everywhere. So I think for my mom, particularly, she knew the power of language and that she knew the language that we entered into in this world as Black folk in the South. And she knew the estimation of our lives that this world had for us. And she, she, I believe, and we have talked about this a lot since then, wanted to kind of surround our lives with a familial language, uh, what people would call the mother tongue, almost similar to what Audre Lorde was right in Sister Outsider, where she says, you know, the white fathers told us, I think, therefore I am. But the black mother, the poet within us, whispers in our dreams, I feel, therefore I can be free. And so my earliest remembrance of a love of literature was almost being baptized in literature in my surrounding as a youngin. Then what does it mean to view black literature as sacred text? Because, you know, this is the Bible for normal people, faith for normal people. We talk about both of these things. How do you view that? Yeah, for me, I think I think about the literal Bible. I know like that that might be a, a weird term for people, but like a li- the, the, the literal, like whatever, whatever we call sacred text when it comes to like the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures. You know, if we evangelical, you know, Holy Bible, whatever, Pentecostal, Methodist, whatever, Holy Bible. But uh, those of us who are on uh, on kind of the, the, the progressive side, we don't even, like do we even call it Bible anymore, bro? Like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, we talk about Q text. What, what, like, yeah, right. <laughs> whatever, whatever you go to for your sacred text in the morning, whether it's the Q, the M, the R, the S, the whatever, the KGV, whatever, the message. <laughs> when you think about when you think about the the sacred text of Christian tradition, I think about the received text of the Jewish tradition, and like when I think about that text, I think also about like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all all these books of the Bible that bear the name of real living human beings who came into a context, who were born into a world, who lived in that world, who died in that world, who loved in that world, who failed in that world, who hurt it in that world, who done miraculous things in that world, who also uh, failed miraculously as well. No matter what their lives contain in it, there's a community that suggests that When you read the story of this person, then you're reading the unfolding of God in human life. 
you're reading the unfolding of this story, this divine story, whereby a people have a relationship and conversation with God and they wrestle with God and they live with God and they live in their world. And so when we think about like Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, this community testifies to the sacredness of their lives. And for me, it's like if their community can say, when I look at Daniel and I hear the story of Daniel, when I look at the Jeremiah and I hear the story of Jeremiah, if I look at Amos and I hear the story of Amos, or if I look at Job, whether it's a myth or reality, when I look at that story, there is something divine there. And there is something that God wants me to learn and listen to. And there's something there that testifies with my spirit that this too is my story. And so for me, it just so happened that when I begin to read deeply in black literature around 2017, 2018, after I had taken a almost a hodge, you know, I don't want to kind of take from our Muslim brothers and sisters, but for real, I, I really resonate with that and Malcolm X's journey uh, to Mecca that he took. And I resonated so deeply with that journey because it represented a sort of transformation and how he thought about the world and how he thought about himself and really his encounter with God and his, his, his encounter with himself. After I took that trip to the National uh, Museum of African-American Arts, History and Culture, basically what we call the Black Museum, because that the term is just too long to, to say in every interview, <laughs> uh, the, Black, the Black Museum in D.C., I was going there on a journey to search for something that I had left the white evangelical church in. I really didn't know what was calling me, but I understood almost kind of like deja vu that it was another version of myself uh, that the spirit was calling out of me that led me to that museum in D.C. And as I've traveled every single level of that museum from the beginnings of colonialism all the way to black music and the artifacts which we have created of the world and how we made the ordinary things of life and we turned them black. You know, all of this was speaking to me about the divinity and the sacredness of black people's lives. And when I started to deeply invest in that, especially reading the words that we've written and have chronicle in history, then I understood why people back in the day would say, when I look at Jeremiah, when I look at Ezekiel, when I look at Daniel, when I look at these persons, there was something beautiful and sacred and divine about their life. And for me, I said, if, if people back then can say that like this book deserves to bear your name and it's sacred, then I believe that we also get the permission to do that right now. And not just the permission, but it's a necessity. Uh, when we think about faith, faith is only what it is because it testifies to our spirit that people who look like us actually matter and worth listening to. Uh, or as Terry Williamson said, I'll never forget the line where she says that black life is as much a starting point as anywhere else. And so when I thought about black literature and its sacredness, you know, I believe that James Cone and Baldwin and Morrison and Bambara and even those now like Kiesa Lehman, Robert Jones, Deja Fillyard, Jasmine Ward and the likes, Jason Reynolds, Jacqueline Woodson, uh, all of them contain within them the spark of the divine and the voice of the divine. And we must listen. And I believe there's something waiting on us there. So there's a sacredness, obviously, to scripture because your spirit can attach to their humanity. And that carries over to other literature that helps you do that as well. Right. So there's there's like an overlap between the two. Right. 
Yeah, so when I read the story of, say, like First Samuel or and read the story of the anointing of Saul and, and that wonderful line toward the end of that first section of that text that you will meet people and you will prophesy and, and you will become a different person. Uh, when I read that text, it, it reaches to me now and I see the ways in which I, too, have had to change and become a different person. And when I read that text and I encounter that text, uh, the way that I interpret my life becomes altered and becomes different because I begin to understand that, like, yes, there are moments in my life where people have acknowledged things in my life and have anointed me uh, with the words of the divine. But then I've had to journey a little bit. I've had to go to my own Rachel's tomb. I've had to go under my own tree at Tabor, at the Mount at Tabor. I've had people who had to ask me along the way, whether it was my therapist or, or my wife or my friends, how are you doing? I've had people who along the way have given me bread and, and filled my stomach and my soul. And I've known what it was like to hear the voice or experience of other people and realize that, yes, I too have become a different person. When I hear that, it changes the way that I think about myself or the ways in which Frederick Buechner in that text on the sermons is the text of Frederick Buechner's on the sermons. And, and he talks about Noah and Noah's Ark and any way that like when we read the story of Noah, we anytime, you know, we reach out to one another to take care of one another. It is our ark. And we don't need the New York Times to tell us or the New Yorker or the Atlantic to tell us that human beings are, are wretched and struggling and things like that. We just, you know, we know we know it's true of us when we read the story of Noah or in Jesus's text. We, we hear the story, the parable of, of the lost coin or we hear the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, we need not have some kind of theological construct to understand that that too can be our story. And so it's similar when I go to Baldwin's text and I read and go tell on the mountain that the young protagonist was looking for a love to which he desired, but did not have early on when it was in the part about the teacher. Then I realized I remember times in my life where I've looked for love and couldn't find it. Or when I read Ben Barbara's text in, um, and, and Gorilla My Love, the lesson, and read that text and, and realize these children looking at F.A.O. Swartz looking through the store and can't get what they are looking for. And the teacher teaches them the lesson that there is a barrier between your desire and what this world actually wants to give to you. Then I understand. I understand, too, that there have been moments in my life where in this world there have been barriers placed between me and my joy. And in both of those instances, whether it's the sacred text of the Bible or whether it's the sacred text of black literature or even other literature, I realize that there is something that I hear that helps me better understand my own story. And it's back to what you Pete, talk about, you know, wisdom, you know, in, in your book. I understand a greater depth of wisdom, as Maya Angelou would suggest, that wisdom is, in some sense, the heart of life. And as you say, it's just the heart of you know, the sacred text or heart of faith, you know, the wisdom so that we may better understand what it means to be human and what it means to take our faith seriously. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Yeah, I'm hearing that texts become sacred when they have this trait that allows us to resonate with it, where it reflects back to us what it means to be human and not in some, I think, therefore I am, not some esoteric generic sense, but whenever it really becomes a tool of wisdom for my own experiences where I can better understand how to navigate the world in this body with the experiences I have. And there are certain texts that resonate with us. They reflect back to us our experiences. And in that way, these texts are sacred texts. Oh, yeah. And, and that gets back to the power of story. Mm-hmm. That is the power of story and what story does to human beings. You know, my granddaddy, as he got older, he were in the late stages of dementia. And my granddaddy ends up falling and has to go to the hospital. A few days later, my granddaddy is on a ventilator because they say he has COVID. Two or three days after that, uh, I'm at my aunt's funeral, who was his oldest daughter. And at that funeral, I never forget uh, toward the end of the funeral, as the pastor, the preacher was eulogizing her, we had a praise break. And it was something beautiful about, you know, in the midst of grieving that we were able to have a praise break in that moment as we heard the story of God's love and the story of this one spectacular life. 
On my way back home, my mom called me and my granddaddy, she tells me that granddaddy is breathing very hard. Well, I already prepared myself, you know, for granddaddy, you know, to wake up either the next morning or the next morning after that or the morning after that to the news that granddaddy was not alive. And that just so happened that that next morning, literally the day after his oldest daughter's funeral, granddaddy passes away. And go on Facebook. I see my granddaddy dancing with his hands in his pocket uh, or, or whatnot. And my brother put up the, the caption, cut them, cut sugar, you know, because they call my granny cut sugar, granddaddy cut sugar. The sweetest thing on this side of the Congaree River, which runs alongside the area where I grew up called Sugar Hill. My granddaddy has his funeral. I speak at my granddaddy's funeral. We go back for the repast. I'm sitting down with Mr. Charles Earl, who's a man, a brilliant, beautiful, 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 beautiful black man. An old, big, beautiful black man who has a really deep voice like this. But he has something of a spark to him because he's a black man who's who's up in age like my granddaddy was. They understood what it was like to be black and American and black and rural and American and have to endure all of these things. So I'm sitting out with Mr. Earl. Mr. Earl takes his cane, put it between his legs and takes a bite from this food. We're eating, we're laughing, we're joking. Mr. Earl asked me a question. He said, Dante, have you ever been on a cruise ship? I said, Mr. Earl, I ain't never been on a cruise ship. He said, you have been, well, you should go on one. I said, all right, Mr. Earl, I'll, go, I'll, I'll take a cruise someday. You know, he's like, you know what I do every time I get off the cruise ship? I say, what you do, Mr. Earl? He says, I always put my feet in the water. I say, what? You know, look at him like his bread ain't done and things like that. I say, why you, why you do that for? He says, I, I do this because I want to remind myself that in these waters that I put my feet in, somebody either swam here or drowned. Then he looks at me and pauses, and he tells me, when you look at yourself, realize somebody has survived the swim. That's one story. That's one way to tell the story. But the other way to tell the story is to go back to the Exodus text and realize that those two stories are the same story. The story of people who were under massive oppression, learning how to survive the swim. That's the power of it. Whether it's written on the tongue, coming out of the belly of a person, or written in books, uh, coming from the mind and the heart of a person. My friend Jason Reynolds says this. He says, what we're able to do with 26 letters is the closest thing we got to magic. It is alchemy. 26 letters, you put them together, rearrange them, you can burn the whole world down. 26 letters, you rearrange them, you can put the world back together. Well, Dante, how do you think about God differently? You know, I mean, how has your thinking about God changed maybe through your interaction with black literature, right? And you're talking a lot about it now. That's actually, I think, what you're talking about. You're talking about God right now and, and your relation with God and, and how uh, it affects your community and all. But how has that affected you? I mean, you know, people read C.S. Lewis, right, or something, and they say, this has changed my faith, blah, blah, blah. Have you had similar experiences reading black literature? Oh, 100%. I'll never forget the day. It was It was literally, I'll never forget, I was, at, I was in the white evangelical church at this point. I was preaching, teaching, leading in that space, ascending in the seminary context, doing my work at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Reformed Theological Seminary. And I was kind of, you know, that, that black dude that's in the white space uh, that's, you know, 
trying to save white people, trying to trying to make white people do better. And was trying to figure out, you know, how to be black and trying to find myself as a black person because I at that moment I had lost myself so much. I had assimilated so much to the point where, you know, I was Christian first and not black. And so as the Donald Trump presidency was going and and Black people were dying. You know, I'll never forget Alton Sterling and Philando Castile being murdered. And then a few weeks later, you know, the, 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 you know, a few months later, you know, this Donald Trump thing is popping off and it's kind of in full effect. I'm asked to preach and things like that. And I preach in this gymnasium where the church is getting renovations. I preach in the gymnasium. And I realized like, dad, yo, like this ain't my place no more. So I went on a journey, which led me to the Black Museum. But I'll never forget reading Martin Luther King's Where Do We Go From Here, which my boy Drew Hall, a big old husky white brother from the South, my boy Drew Hall gave me that copy of Martin Luther King's Where Do We Go From Here. In that book, Martin Luther King quotes James Baldwin. And in quoting James Baldwin, he says that what you have endured and what they make you go through is not a testament to your inferiority, but it is a testament to their insecurity and their fear. And so when I read that text, I was like, I got to read the fire next time. And so I bought a copy of the fire next time and I read the fire next time, literally like two or three times over three or four weeks. And I get to that point that Baldwin says in the second half down at the cross, if the concept of God has any use of validity, it can only make us more larger, more freer and more loving. And if God cannot do this, then we better had get rid of him. And so as I came in contact with that text, I realized at that moment that my view of God did not make me larger, more loving. My view of God made me smaller and more arrogant. And this, I think, was the dangers of discipleship within evangelical churches and beyond, you know, especially regarding certainty and and controlling God. You know, we we lack a faith where we can control who God is, you know, but we we say we we say this in all the time as evangelicals, the incomprehensibility of God. We we love that incomprehensibility that that there is a part of God that we cannot know and then we say God is incomprehensible and then in the other hand we say If you do not believe in God or believe in theology the way that I do, then you're going to hell or that you are less than and that you're not enough or that you're not loved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so like for me to encounter Baldwin was for me to question like Dante, what God do you really believe in? What God do you really believe love this world? And the biggest shift that happened for me was when I understood that God just doesn't love me. God loves the world. We we say it all the time. God loves us. But we need to ask, who is the us in that sentence? And if that us isn't expansive and reflects the heart of God, then that us is not the God as God has revealed in the sacred texts. And so for me, my understanding of God expanded to say like, yo, it is okay for me to redefine my relationship with God. I lose nothing. You know, I had a friend a few weeks ago 
she leads small group and somebody came to small group and asked her, you know, now this was me, Reverend Dante Stewart. This is me putting on the Reverend Dante Stewart hat in this moment. A, fr- a person came to the small group. They were reading the Bible and reading the Genesis text. And they were kind of struggling going through like, yo, if God knew that like they were going to eat the fruit, does that mean that, you know, God is caught by surprise? So this person in small group, you know, everyday Christian, ain't in seminary, you know, and things like that. You know, they just got a real question. And so my friend asked me, she was like, Dante, like, you know, how you would have respond? And so I told her, I was like, because they was wondering about God's power. Is God powerful? And I told her, I was like, you know what? For me, it's okay for things to catch God by surprise. Because my idea of God's power isn't based on God has to control all things at every moment at any given circumstance. My idea of God's power is that no matter the circumstance, God can reorient its direction. For me, that is moving from certainty to hope. I am hope-filled when I understand that my relationship and God's relationship to the things that happen in this world is guarded by the divine heart. Yeah, I mean, our friend Tom Ord, who's a theologian, he he talks like that too. You know, the sovereignty and power of God directing all things sovereignly, blah, blah. The God of love doesn't control you know, and so it's, it's, you know, for God to be caught by surprise, that's almost the cost of doing business if you're going to be a God of love and not a God of just like a king pointing fingers and making things happen sovereignly. That it's, it's hard to think of God as, you say heart, you know, it's, I, th- I think personally, it's hard to think of God as love when you just can't relate to somebody, you know, who, who like has everything under, like every step is planned for you, right? That kind of thing. I think it's hard to relate to a God like that. I mean, for some people, you know, but I think for some people, they need it. And it's okay. It's okay for people to need a God that controls things. Because this was the other part of the conversation. My friend responded. She said, it makes me feel better, you know, that like God knows what God is doing. And I'm like, that's okay as well. And like, this the thing. When it comes to like theology and faith and the practice of it and being Christian and living together and trying to be better to one another, it means that like, yo, it's okay for you to need your version of God that tries to make you as more as most loving as possible. Because at some moments, I ain't gonna lie, I like the idea. The idea of a God who controls is alluring. It's very alluring, you know, and and at moments in my own life, I need that. Just like there are moments where I need a church experience that's just straight speaking in tongues and high worship and like, and it's thick in here. Like my church right now, where I'm, where I'm at, it get thick every Sunday. It gets thick every Sunday, you know, but then there are also moments where like, well, I just want to sit back in my chair, in my orange chair in my room and like kind of read a heavy theology book. And I think that's how we hold faith better. It is okay for you to need what you need, but it is also not okay for in your needing what you need for that need to supersede another person's humanity or another person's 
desire to be free. That's when I got a problem with that. That's why that's my big problem with like many of our faith traditions that become unloving. It's not that they hold their faith traditions or their ideas or framework with a tight hand only. It's that like they can't even perceive a world in which the experience and the faith of another person is as real and as powerful and as beautiful as their own. And if we can stay away from that, even as people who like arguing about Q and T and P and M and and <laughs> I don't, I, whatever that is, or like, you know, you know, whatever we're going to argue about, like argue about it, cool, cool, knock it out, dig it out, whatever. But at the end of the day, come back to the center. And the center almost always must be our first thing. That must be love. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that because that for me is often the case is there is a diversity, but there is a center or a filter of love. It's sort of these different interpretations or different frameworks for faith. Those can all be tools, but if they're not tools toward a more just and a more loving world and relationship with our neighbors and ourselves, 
then that's when it becomes problematic. It's not really the content as much as the container and the filter through which we're talking about these things. Because, yeah, I agree. And I, I would think that a lot of times power dynamics and cultural dynamics play a role in whether a god of ultimate control or or the existence of hell and that sort of thing is a tool toward hate or exclusion or fear or whether it's a tool towards justice and love. And some of those things can happen just in the context of different people groups and different experiences and cultures. Yeah, 100. And we got to take that honestly. Like my background's in sociology. So like when I, whenever I came to like the Bible, when I came to myself as a person, like I really leaned on my kind of sociological background uh, as an undergraduate and the many conversations that me and my professors would have about like faith and society and the human reality and social relations and whatever, whatever, whatever. You know, and I think I think that's like a big key is like, Yo, we got to think about where our things come from. Like they come from a place and we better have thought about that place. Like people love the Protestant Reformation, right? And they, they say Semper Reformata, you know, and things like that. And so they do a Gloria and Sola Scriptura and Sola, Sola whatever, you know, five solas, right? But be clear, them same people were drowning babies in the river because somebody didn't believe the way they believed. They tied them up, put them in a chair, just like we sit on, took them people, women, children, men, didn't matter, and threw them in the river. Like, didn't matter. We're going to throw you in the river. And guess what? We're going to go Sunday, whatever, whatever they, they worship, the Lord's Day, just like those in early America or middle, that right after Reconstruction, you know, when the time of lynching, you know, praising God on Sunday. And, and, and next thing you know, Sunday afternoon, we're going to go lynch some folk. And even today, like all of these things come from somewhere and we better had thought about history and context and power. Like, I don't care how good my theology make me feel. If my theology comes from a context in which people believe it was okay to drown a human being, if they believe it was okay to murder a human being, if they believe it was okay for you to like, justify war against other people, if it was okay for you to like disregard people, then there, that toxicity cannot but be in the way I hold my theology because it comes from a place of toxicity. And I think like, think about Jesus when Jesus says, you know, hey, you have heard it say, but I say to you. And for me, it was as if Jesus was saying to them, you know, there were toxic theologies and practices that you inherited and it's not your fault. And there are those things that must be rethought and re-understood and reimagined. You lose nothing from what that tradition or theology gave you. You gain everything when you allowed that theology and tradition to be criticized and to become better. And whenever we can't do that, bro, like that theology dead, bro. Nietzsche was right. Nietzsche was right. That theology dead, baby. Well, with that, because I appreciate that idea of allowing our preconceived ideas, inherited traditions, theological traditions to be critiqued. And I think for me, reading black literature did that sometimes explicitly, but sometimes more just implicitly by showing a new set of experiences. So if somebody's new to reading 
black literature as a, as a spiritual practice, as a way to expand their theological imagination, what would you advise them to, to do to start? How, how do they begin? Oh, man, I always go to Sister Maya, bro. Maya Angelou is the beginning, the middle, the end. Act one, act two, act three. You know, and this is the thing I love about Maya Angelou that blesses me. And, and really what I try to do as Reverend Dante Stewart, the writer, Maya Angelou had a beautiful way of taking her faith seriously, but also holding her faith humbly. And she was a lover of life. She loved life. She loved the idea that there can be something had in a book or the smile of a child or the way her aunt and those black domestic workers would turn a broom into a microphone or would turn a dustpan into a tambourine when the white folk left their home or something beautiful can be found in a friendship like the way she had with James Baldwin or even, you know, realizing like the complexity of our lives that we hold multitudes that like, I am not everything that people would want from a reverend or this person is not everything that people will want from them. And I think she holds it in such a beautiful, beautiful way that for me has been life-giving. Between the months of September 2nd, 2021 to about April 2022, I went through some of the most deepest, darkest, depressive moments in my life. Went through grief and tragedy of unutterable (laughs) uh, portions. And 2023 was the first time that I learned that I had major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and CPTSD. And here I am, busy, working, writing, taking care of my family, my two toddlers, trying to make a living out of this thing called writing, showing up the Sunday weekend, a week out, and found myself in the like darkest of darkest places, bro, which struggled with panic attacks. And it, it was just absolutely horrible, <laughs> terrible uh, for me and, and my life. But I'll never forget stumbling upon a copy of wouldn't take nothing from my journey now and stumbling upon that book and reading that book. And I read this line. She talked about planned pregnancies and talk about when a woman plans her pregnancy, there is the experience of noticing so much more that you pay attention to so much more. You, you, you notice so much more. You notice things that, that, that you were anticipating this. You were planning this. You, you wanted it to happen and it's happening now because you planned it. There's the expectation and you, you, you just noticing so much more about it. And she says, if we can approach life not as a common thing, but approach it with persistent imagination, then life will give for us immense gratification. And for me, when I read that line, I changed because she was talking about pregnancy. I said, if I can think about my writing, not as a common thing or my depression, not just simply as a common thing, but like approach it 
persistently imaginative. My struggles as a father, as a husband, someone who's trying to write and make a living out of this, somebody who comes from one of the poorest areas of South Carolina, someone who has changed and evolved and grieve and have to carry all of that heartbreak. When I think about, you know, if I can approach, you know, my faith as if it's not a common thing or something that's like working out or cutting the grass or checking on a friend or reading a book or recording an interview and do it persistently imaginatively, then it can give back to me immense gratification because I would have learned the power and the key to all of life, which is simply being present with it. So as when it's when it's time to tell what happened, we actually remember it. So if people want to start, start with Maya and then go from Maya and search black writers in history and chew and pick anything and, and just go from there. Now, if you're the more academic type, my academic work is actually in black literature and theology. I did my thesis at Emory on Baldwin and Baldwin's theology. It was entitled, What We Did Was Not Supposed to Happen. James Baldwin, The Black Sacred Imagination and the Stories That Free Us. And my actually, what was fun about this, the dope part, is though I was the divini- a divinity school student, my thesis advisor was in the English department at the university, which was an amazing, amazing experience. And she had me read in this book and buy all the, she put, basically put me on a speed, like a, a, speed, a, a speed journey through like a graduate level English degree. And there's a book entitled The New Cavalcade. It may be out of print, may not be out of print, but it's an anthology of black writing from the 1700s to present that she uses. You know, there's also the book, The History of the African-American Novel. There's also the book by Yosef Soret entitled Spirit in the Dark, A Religious History of Racial Aesthetics. You know, you can you can start with those books, get an anthology of black literature and just swim in it and read it and have fun with it. There's so much there. Thank you, Dante, for coming on. And I really want to thank you for just dipping into a little bit more about your personal story. I think mm-hmm. that resonates and that persistent imagination and kind of a re-enchantment. And that does tie to, I mean, it kind of comes full circle for, again, these texts that resonate with us are sacred texts because we have the imagination for having them be sacred texts. We, we can re-enchant these things insofar as we pay attention to how they resonate with us. So thank you so much for coming and sharing some of your story and your love of black literature. I feel like that kind of just oozes through when you talk and it's, it's infectious. So thank you for that. Oh man. Thank y'all for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And now for quiet time with Pete and Jared. All right, Jared, you said, and I'm quoting you here, Texts become sacred when they reflect back to us what it means to be human whenever it becomes a tool of wisdom for my own experiences. Now, Dante, then he responded in agreement, right, and said that's the power of story. So for you, what stories come to mind when you think about, you know, this this relationship to your spirituality, your body, or your experience? What I want to initially say is that I don't do well with story. But I think that's actually incorrect. I think I do respond to certain kinds of stories. I think there are people who really 
they resonate with story as such. And so all kinds of stories resonate with them. I think for me, it's much more limited. But when I think about the go-tos, there are kind of three categories of story. You know, there are, for me, I think I've mentioned movies and music tell stories for me that I resonate with a lot. You know, my go-to story, and I haven't really unpacked why, is The Great Gatsby. Hmm. It's sort of my comforting, I've listened to the audiobook maybe five or six times. I've read it two or three times. I've watched the movie three or four times. Something about that story resonates with me. In how I did not see that coming, by the way. <laughs> left field, huh? I, totally. I did not <laughs> see that coming at all. Okay. <laughs> I've kept it to myself. We're supposed to be like opening up here, I know. you know, <laughs> faith for normal people. But then I wanted to take it a step further because I think the stories for me that have become more and more sacred as I've gotten older are less those that I hold at a distance and more stories from my family. Um, both my extended family and the stories that shape them. Like when we sit around family and we've had a couple of drinks, what are the stories that come to the surface? Both that make us mad. Some There's some stories in our family that causes fights almost every time. There are some stories that make us laugh. And so those stories resonate with me and show me not what it means to be human in an abstract sense, which I think I was more interested in when I was younger, and more, what does it mean to, for me to be a human in my embodied context? And so family stories ground me in a way that wasn't true when I was younger. So I- any of those that help me feel seen and help me feel heard, I think, are the stories that become sacred for me. What, mm-hmm. what, what about you? How would you answer that question for yourself? Well, I, I would say that the stories that I can think of, uh, like you, I'm not... I'm just too left brainish. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And, yeah. and that's that's a problem. That's not an asset, right. folks. Trust me. There's a downside to this, right? But I think the stories that I connect with are ones that give me that get me out of my head, actually, that give me a different vision for just what it means to live. And I may have mentioned this before, but I, you know, I hate to say I did Lord of the Rings. I'll, I can, you know, I can watch those movies every year. You know, I don't want to read the book. I don't have time, but I do want to sit there and the cinematography, it just, it captures things that I just think is, it lets my imagination see myself in a different setting. How would I, what would I do in that situation? So that, to me, that's pretty powerful. I also love the movie. These are, these are things that have actually had an impact on me that when I watched The Tree of Life, I was stunned after I watched that, just the sweeping scope of explaining so much of big reality going back to evolution and also family problems and sort of like sweeping that. It's a story that really was meaningful to me. And I'm probably not even sure why, but I just sort of like the big picture. And I hate to say this because people are going to laugh at me, but I don't care. We're being vulnerable, right? That's right. Okay. I sometimes I'm looking for things to watch because I'm bored. And I say, don't watch the Marvel movies again. Don't watch them again. You just saw them again. You just, saw, you just watched them all earlier this year. Don't do it. But I wanted to, don't do it. No, be sophisticated. Watch a documentary. No. Uh, so I go back and forth, but there's something about, especially origin stories of superheroes that have captivated me since probably I was three years old. Mm. I used to put a cape around, uh, not a cape, actually uh, a towel or a, or a little, like a blanket mm-hmm. around my neck and and jump off the sofa like I was flying. And I remember coming home from school once, walking home because I didn't live far and thinking if I ran fast enough, I might get enough wind under my sails to jump up a little bit. So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, so that's the kind of stuff that really has meant a lot to me. But like you, it's also learning 
to see my life against the backdrop of a family story. Mm-hmm. And my sister, and I, again, I may have mentioned this at some point, but she's sort of like the family archivist and she does the genealogical research. And I have names now going back hundreds of years in my family and I, I, it's on a tree, you know, and I look at it and I say, I'm just so connected to these people, which gives me a different point of view. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. um, those are ways that stories are, I think, helping me see beyond my limited analytical gaze. And so I appreciate it. Yeah. So, yeah. And maybe that's kind of the bigger point is how, yeah, stories just get us out of that. Yeah, right. Well, Dante also talks about this shift around interrogating what it meant to say God loves us and to ask the question, who is the us? Have you ever had to redefine what an us <laughs> All meant? the time, yeah. Yeah, for me, definitely. And I, I mentioned this in Curveball a little bit in, other, in some other settings too, but just moving beyond you know, the Christian tribe, and even more narrowly, the Christian tribe that I recognize as Christian tribe, and just seeing the us meaning everyone, you know, and hopeful Christian ultimate redemptionism kind of thing, you know, just, I'm in the Christian story, obviously, but thinking of us in as expansive a way as possible, otherwise, I think we're limiting even what we mean by God is love. Mm -hmm. I think if we limit that I start having some intellectual analytical problems with that, you know, so. Well, and that, for me, to tie into that, the first thing that I thought of was going through this time where it changed the nature of prayer for me, because there was this common prayer style in my tradition and for me that was exclusivistic. And I mean that in the sense of praying for my team to win a game. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody does that. Praying that we would get a good parking spot. Praying for good fortune for me, which is not bad in itself, but the realization for me when I had to redefine the us was the recognition that sometimes those prayers are zero-sum games, that if I win, someone else loses. Right. And so the us is not big enough. It is us at the expense of them. And in my prayer life reflected that yeah. us them mentality when it came to then more nationalistic agenda items mm-hmm. for for sure i had to redefine us where right. it was sort of we're praying for us our military we're praying for right. our president yeah. in this universal sense that's fine but when it gets pitted against us we're praying for us so that we win against them right then it becomes problematic it sounds very non-jesusy to me, you know, the gospels and stuff, it just doesn't sound right to me. Well, and it gets really tricky because when you're convinced that the us is doing the right thing for the them, right. you can justify just about anything. Yeah. Well, we need to win but because- But if we win, somebody else loses. Well, if in America, if we win, then we spread democracy, which is what God wants for all of us. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's resisting democracy Amen. are doing it at their own peril. Mm-hmm. It's almost paternalistic. We know better for them what's good for them than they do. And that kind of us versus them, again, it's well-intentioned. I guess my point is it's well-intentioned. Sometimes it's this villainized them, but more often than not, it was like, no, 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 you just don't understand. Let us conquer you and tell you how to do it the right way, and then you'll understand why we were right all along. Mm. And that can be militaristic. That could be evangelicalism in the terms of, of evangelism. Right. And it can be any of those things. And so for me, that's where I think I had to redefine us in this much broader sense, which is was a scary thing. And I think, you know, politically or religiously, that's been the way of civilization ever since we've known it. This is not new, you know. Right. And, right. Mm. Well, then maybe I'll end our time 
here with this last idea of God's power being based on control, because I think that ties in a little bit with this idea of prayer, that God can manipulate everything and control everything. And Dante talks about God's power isn't based on control, but God's ability to reorient direction. But I want to ask the broader question for you, because you mentioned in there, Tom Ord, how has your idea of God's power shifted through the years? Yeah, it has. Exactly in this way that I don't think God is coercive or standing there with the divine arms folded, annoyed that we're not getting it. I can't, I just, I can't, I can't believe that. And, and the notion of, you know, we both were a part of a tradition where God's primary characteristic is sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Everything stems from that. And Tom and others say, well, maybe it's God's love and everything, God's sovereignty has to be seen in light of God's love, not the other way around. Right. So to make that clear, whatever we say about God's sovereignty, it has to comport with God as loving, the, the rather more, than the other way around, right. which was, well, we can say that God's loving, but whatever we mean by that has yeah. to comport with, has to fit within this definition of sovereignty that we know is correct. That God can do whatever God wants to do with anybody at any time, even if it sounds capricious, it's still consistent with love. That's the problem that a lot of people have had, and I began having it as well. And that sovereignty gets to define love. Right. So, God's love is understood in the context of control and... Again, I, I probably have mentioned this someplace because I love this book, but William Placker wrote a book, Narratives of a Vulnerable God. He was a died a few years ago. He's a um, Presbyterian theologian. But you, know, you start reading that book and it's like, no, it's not sovereignty. The God of, of Scripture is actually vulnerable and engaging and affected by creation and things like that. And I, that's just, it, it just made me, that's one of many things that has made me think very differently of God. And, and it's not because, you know, we like to tickle itching ears and we don't like a God telling us what to do kind of nonsense. It's just, no, it just makes sense. Right. Well, I think that's a good question to keep exploring. And I think we'll probably have more folks on like Tom Ord and others who can help us parse through some of the implications of a God who doesn't control, because I, I do think so. that's yeah. very baked into a lot of our understanding mm-hmm. of God. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and it may not be all bad in the sense of, you know, there's a lot of theologies of from oppressed and marginalized people where having a God of control is actually very helpful. Right. Um, right. And so we have to take that into account exactly as right. well. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schaub. Um, and I was kind of, you know, that, that black dude that's in the white space, uh, that's, you know, trying to save white people, trying to, trying to make white people do better. Did it you know, work? Trying to, 
<laughs> Pete, <laughs> would I be would I be talking to you if it worked? <laughs> no, yeah, right. <laughs> you got your you got your own answer there, brother. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.